So, hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm doing all right down here in sunny Florida, waiting for spring training to start. And I wish I was in the sunny Florida. All it is up here is rain and crap. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, so you were born in Long Island, but moved down to Fort Lauderdale at what, age 12? And then found yourself going up to the Midwest at Drake University. How'd you, how'd you see that happening? So this is going to sound ancient to uh, people in this day and age, but back then I was graduating high school in 1979. We, we didn't have like virtual tours and, and, you know, 3D online things and, and Zooms to talk to students or see the campus. So um, I knew I wanted to go into journalism. I was kind of that rare person who did it in high school and thought I want to do this in college. I was what I want to study. I was like, you know, on the high school paper and stuff and worked for a local paper part-time in, in Coral Springs where I grew up. And uh, you know, colleges would come to your gym. You'd have like a college night and there'd be like a person from each school. They'd have a little table in the gym. They'd have pamphlets and brochures about their college. And, huh. you know, then, you, then you'd go like look in a book to read up on them. Like we didn't, <laughs> we didn't have all this online stuff these days. It wasn't instantaneous. And, uh, you know, I, I knew I wanted to study journalism as a freshman. Um, most of the people I went to high school with were going to University of Florida. I didn't really want to go where everyone else was going. Mm -hmm. Uh, Drake was one of those few schools that allowed you to get into your major as a freshman. And that was important to me. I didn't want to do two years of liberal arts. I wanted to get oh. into journalism as a freshman. So I kind of narrowed it down to uh, Drake and Marquette. And, you know, kind of your, your teachers talk to your teachers a little bit. And I had a teacher, Spanish teacher who'd gone to Marquette. And she's like, do you know that that's not really like a, a campus, like with the, the brick buildings and the green trees and the courtyards? It's, it's in the city of Milwaukee. It's in downtown. And I didn't know that. So I was like, all right, I kind of want the other thing. And that's what Drake was. I saw the pictures. And uh, so sight unseen, no campus visit, no <laughs> anything, uh, all done over the phone and you know, through mail and stuff. Got a little scholarship money and got on a plane one day in August of 1979. I was still 17. I was one of those late, late, just my age falls late. So I was 17 years old, got on a plane, got off at Des Moines Airport, never been to the Midwest at all. And there was a van there with a sign and Drake's an <laughs> old sign went to campus, man. And, <laughs> and then, so here, here's the little funniest side to that is that uh, I find out like, like after I get out of school, talking to people kind of telling that story and they're like, well, did you not consider Missouri? That's a great journalism school. I'm like, I thought Missouri was too far. Then I look at a map and realize Missouri is <laughs> actually closer than Drake. You know? Oh my so God. You'll be happy to find it amusing to know the only D I ever got was in geography. So that goes to show exactly <laughs> why that I got that D in geography. <laughs> Drake is a small school, isn't it? Yeah, it was probably about 1,500 or 3,000 students maybe back then. And it's grown a little bit, but it, it was cool. It was actually exactly what I wanted. You got it to do, hmm. you got to get involved as a freshman. You got to be involved. I was uh, I was on the school paper from freshman year on. I was sports editor sophomore year. I was editor of the whole paper junior year. Uh, Des Moines Register is a really good paper in Des Moines. They were really open to hiring students and letting you do real things, not just be the intern who sat there and answered the phone. And uh, Associated Press needed somebody to like cover the Drake basketball game. So like I traveled with the sports teams when I worked for the school paper, covered home games. Uh, we had the one of the presidents or vice presidents visited one year. We got a credential for that. So just got to do some really cool hands-on wow. stuff in a small school environment and, and not anything against the big school environment like you guys have at UNCC, <laughs> but it was just a chance to like, that's what I wanted. I wanted to get involved. I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't need to find myself like some people do and right or wrong, it worked. And, and here I am at 60 years old, still doing the journalism thing. Yeah, well, that's one of the rare things about you is you kind of do something and you stick to it. You've been at... So Mark is actually a sports writer for the Tampa Bay Times covering the Rays baseball team. And he's been there ever since the Rays started. What year was that again? 
uh, so the Rays started in 1998, was their first season. The franchise was awarded in 1995. I've actually been at the paper since 83. So I came here straight oh, wow. from Drake. Um, got a, had like three opportunities coming out of school in 83. And this was definitely the best. It was probably the worst job of the three, but it was the best paper. Hmm. And uh, just thought, you know what? That's, you know, you know, family was in Fort Lauderdale, you know, kind of close to home, four hours away. Um, and it just thought, you know, this is probably the best chance if I, you know, the challenge was there, like you're taking the lesser job. It was a 32 hour a week job, but see if you can work yourself up. And within a year I was full time and I was in sports where I wanted to go. I started on the new side. So it worked out really well. Wow. What were the other two opportunities that you kind of um, up on? So C- Cedar Rapids Gazette in Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which you know, down a couple hours from Drake near Iowa city where university of Iowa is, which is also a good journalism school, but just didn't, didn't really do anything for me. The other position was at the Fort Myers paper, and it was a sports writing position, which is what I really wanted. But this, this is, again, how long ago this was. USA Today was in the formative years, and they had someone as a Gannett paper on loan to USA Today. So my job was basically predicated on the person at USA Today staying with their job. If they got sent back to Fort Myers, my job went away. And I was like, well, uh, I don't. Yeah, it, didn't make sense to, it doesn't sound like a good future. Ahead. Yeah, yeah. Be hanging like your future is hanging by how someone else does. So yeah. St. Pete Times, as it was called back then, made sense. And, and like I said, here I am, 30, whatever it is, 39 years later, still here. Yeah, wow. What what made you stay? If you don't mind me asking. Like, Yeah, no, I had, had some offers. Yeah, had some offers to go, some other papers. Um, well, three, probably three really good offers. And then um, obviously talk with The Athletic, as many of our, many people in our business did too, when they were first getting going. And I think in each case, um, certainly with the other papers, to be honest with you, it was just was like any of those jobs, I couldn't see going to and saying, I'm going to stay there forever. I, okay, I'll go there. It's a cool job. I'm going to get more money. It's a cool place to live, but I'm probably not going to stay there. Whereas mm-hmm. I could stay here. And it turns out I probably will stay here. So yeah. it, it worked out again really well, but mm-hmm. you know, it, it's nice to be wanted and it's fun to get a job offer and, you know, go in and talk to your boss and get a little raise because you got a job offer. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that, that, that game still works to a degree. If anyone's watching this at the same times, I know it didn't mean it that way, but you know, it does work. And uh, 39 years later, <laughs> but uh, you know, so it, it's just been a, it's a, it's a good paper. It's a great place to live. I mean, you know, we, we literally kind of have this cliched saying my wife and I, and some other friends, it's like, you know, we, we live here. Like people pay tons of money to come down here on vacation year round. And then, you know, Patty Cox will tell you that too. And, and we live here. I mean, we have the sunsets and the sunrises and the beautiful weather. So hard yeah. to leave. I love Tampa. I love that place. I, so I, uh, what you're saying about the small school, big school type of thing. I actually dipped my foot in kind of both the pools. I last year I was over at Queens University of Charlotte, which is a fifteen hundred like person campus, and I played lacrosse there, and it was fun and all. But I'm definitely the opposite of you. I like the big school, kind of more people, kind of get to know more people than you really like actually get to know them. Sort of just sure. acquaintances, but yeah, I that's unbelievable to me that you're able to go to the school you never saw before. Just go there, stay for four years. That's enough for me. Right, like, I can right. barely stay at a school for a year. And then you follow up and get one job and you stay in that that Times paper, I guess. It's basically the same job, same location, everything for 39 years later. Like, I guess it's just like two different people in this world. Like some that you were saying that these opportunities that you would see and you wouldn't know if you were going to stay there or not. Some people would see that as an advantage and be like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think I'm going to stay there for the next five years, but that's okay. Like I'll find somewhere else to go. Right. Exactly. So, you're definitely a rare breed when it comes to that. And it's respectful in its own like manner, you know, that's, 
really like impressive. Yeah, and there's definitely no right or wrong. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no like this is the right or this is the wrong. It was it was what worked for me. And you know, look, the newspaper business industry wide is struggling. And, and there's times when I've seen some of the things the athletic has done and some of the resources they have. And you know, I've second guessed myself. And I think that's mm. you know fair to say. I don't think I'm you know making anyone sound or look bad by saying that. But you know, on the other hand, I, I love what I do. I love, you know, to tell people what's going on. I love to break news, even small news on a daily basis. Covering a baseball team is, is literally an everyday assignment in, in a typical year. Obviously, we're in a lockout, but, you know, from mid-February till the end of September. And if you're, you know, the team you cover goes to the postseason into October. And, you know, it's, it's a fun thing to be involved in. It's, it's draining. It's exhausting. It's tiring. It's, you know, a lot of travel, a lot of short nights, not a lot of sleep, whatever, whatever, whatever. But the reality is. I, I, you know, I love getting up and I, I go to work at a major league baseball stadium most days. So it's Amazing. hard to beat yeah. that. Literally. And like, honestly, what you're saying about the kind of hard work and the te- like tears and time and the short sleep and everything. That's what the fun things are in life, to be quite honest. Like no one really likes those things where you just go to work, sit in a cubicle and you maybe punch a couple Excel papers in and then you're done for the day. Like those are the people that hate their jobs in the end of it all. But when you have these day-to-day experiences with, I saw that your uh, Twitter post about the guy throwing out in the parking lot. So yeah. that blew up a little bit. See, like small things like that. It's just you don't see that on a daily daily basis in your job, and like, that's just exciting in itself. But I want to get to that MLB lockout. But first, I want to ask you about your journalism kind of career. You said you started in high school, but what made you start in high school? Uh, so another another kind of funny self um, self humiliating story is I'm. Uh, <clears throat> community where we live near Fort Lauderdale called Coral Springs, which back then also was tiny. Like they were, they hadn't even had, didn't even have a high one high school. When we moved there. They have five high schools now in Coral Springs. So just to give you an example of how that's grown. But so I was playing um, like little league, senior league ball, whatever you play it. Um, like we moved on as well. So 12, 13, whatever you call it, maybe senior league at that point. And there was a weekly newspaper and they had roundups like on all the other leagues and they'd never had anything in our, about ours. So I just like, I don't know, for whatever reason, I just called them one day and I was like, hey, I play in the senior league. You have roundups on these like five other leagues. You never have ours. You're like, we don't have anybody to do it. I said, well, I, I could do it. Like I, I've written, you know, in school, I like to write and, you know, want to be on the school paper. And they were like, well, who are you? As so I tell them, they're like, well, you're playing in the league. I don't know if that'll work. I'm like, don't worry. I'm not very good. I'll never have to write about myself. So they're like, <laughs> ah, okay. And so I did. So I, I like, that was kind of my first bylines were like filing these weekly reports to, you know, like, hey, this is the Coral Springs Senior League. You know, the the Dodge dealership team won three games. Liam Patterson had four home runs for his team, and Mark Topkin pitched for his team. You know, the the Dairy Queen team or whatever. And but that that was it. That's how I got started. And then, you know, like I said, started working for the high school paper as a freshman, and it just kind of took off from there. Wow, that's just like just that kind of like circumstance brings you to an entire career. Like, God. See, like, that's why I'm kind of starting this podcast is because some people just have no idea what they want to do. And honestly, I feel like the journalist, like, kind of aspect, like, that whole career field is probably pretty unknown. Like, you really don't know how you're going to get into it. You don't know, like, what's really going to happen. And, like, that's another question I kind of have is how do you find these opportunities to find careers in the journalist field? Like, is it your pieces that you write and you send them in? Or is there, like, internships that go along with it? Because... I know like I'm a finance major and kind of the like already beaten path for my career is sort of you get a certain GPA of like 3.6 or above. You apply to 50 different banks in the city or wherever you want to go. 
They look at your resume. They might interview you. They might not. They might just give you a quick internship as a finance analyst or something. And you're in there giving coffees. Like, how does it kind of work as a journalist? That's good. It's a good question and an interesting contrast, because I think in journalism, um, even even today, which is obviously vastly different than, you know, coming out of high school and or coming out of college in 83. But it, it's a much more hands on thing. And, and hands on means a lot now because, you know, journalism is, is obviously not just writing an article, you know, on, on we, we used to call it typewriters, but on a laptop, you know, for a, a print publication. I mean, podcasts are part of journalism now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, broadcast, you know, social media. Um, you know, secondary social media, I mean, branding players and teams that have their own websites. So there's, there's so many different things that now kind of fall under the umbrella of journalism. My own daughter, um, who went to University of Central Florida, a huge school here in Florida, totally opposite of me. um, She literally has been on the opposite side. She's been in PR. She majored in PR. She's now 11, 12 years into her career. Two really good PR jobs. So it's funny, but like, that's also under the umbrella of journalism, even though Literally, the current job she has right now, uh, she does crisis management PR for Marriott Corp. And there's days when she'll be like, you know, tell me about something. She goes, so my boss said our number one job is to keep this out of the paper. What do you suggest? And I'm like, it's like <laughs> you're like stabbing me in the heart. Like, like the opposite our, of what you our <laughs> job is to find out about stuff like this. But, but you know, that, that all falls under the umbrella of journalism. And, and I think the basic two like things that still hold true today, even though it's much more complicated, is Get as much experience as you can anywhere, even if you're you hear these stories and these are true stories. I know people that did this that like they became play by play broadcasters for pro sports teams. They started by going to high school games and usually games sitting off by themselves in the top row of the bleachers with a tape recorder or yeah, now you could use your phone and just doing play by play into their phone or into their tape recorder. And that's that's how they taught themselves. And they would listen and, you know, compare themselves to obviously the professionals on TV, but go back and keep doing it. So. Like from that level to, to sending in articles to your local weekly newspaper, whatever it is, social media, Twitter, Facebook. I mean, as much uh, as you can do as far as, you know, find opportunities, volunteer. You're, people hate when you say this, but you're going to have to work for free. You're going to have to do, you know, you, maybe your, your grandmother lives in a condo and they're doing a newsletter and you could offer to be the, you know, edit that newsletter for the person who does it. Just find a way to get some hands-on experience. And the other thing is learn every platform there is there's stuff today that i just can't do like i don't we like i don't know how to make a video clip off the game hot broadcast and get it to twitter and we have people at our paper who do thankfully and you know i shout out to them and they'll usually help me out but like i'm watching a game and there's some crazy play and i'm i want to put a blog post up like this is the you know headline craziest catch you've seen kevin kiermeyer make but I can't, I don't know how to get the video on there to make it, to show it. Cause you can get a lot more clicks if people could watch the clip. And like, I don't know how to do that. So anyone coming up, learn everything you can from the technology and the platform standpoint, learn every way you can do everything and get as much experience as you can. Yeah. That's a fair point. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to even like kind of rebuke that because it's basically like what you were kind of talking about back in the day where you're just writing the journalist piece. It's the same kind of like, situation you're just you need a real life example of what you've done and like how you could do what you do for them and send it in and hope they like you know work for that but that's honestly great advice and i'm sure there's a lot of people listening that would really enjoy kind of hearing what you just said about that glad i got you on i also wanted to talk to you about just kind of like the life aspect of you know growing up and especially in a career like that where you're moving around a lot and you said that one of your proudest accomplishments earlier was your daughter and like her being, you know, a 
accomplished person in like her career and kind of would just want you to speak on, you know, growing up doing something like having a wife and having a kid. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt there's, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's a sad thing to say, but you know, there's a high level of, you know, divorce among people in the sports business, whether it's, you know, sports writers or sports media people, uh, because you're, you are, you, you're just, you're away a lot. You're, you're on the clock all the time. I mean, I, I literally couldn't list for you, Liam, all the times I had to either not go somewhere I was supposed to go, go late, tell my wife to go on her own. I'll meet you there. Tell the kids I can't make it to something I told them I was going to go to with because, you know, there's news, something happened. There's a story, something's breaking and you've got to be willing to embrace that. And I, and I think that the current uh, worker isn't as willing to embrace that. And, and that's probably good that people have kind of evolved where they've, they're able to draw more boundaries. They're better to have, you know, that you hear about this work-life balance is kind of a thing now. That, that phrase wasn't around in the 80s and, and yeah. 90s, and people didn't know that. And so it's like, I, I'm proud of the fact that I, I've like thrown myself into my work or my career for this whole time. But yet there's also things that, like if I was your age, if I was starting over, I probably would try to, now that, you know, you can do that. You don't get fired. Like you can do that. You can have these boundaries. You can have work-life balance and, you know, I mean, I'm literally, we just talked about it because he just recently passed. There was a meatloaf concert down here in uh, Clearwater. This was years and years ago, like in the, probably in the early 2000s. Yeah, and we've been looking forward. Because I don't know what meatloaf is. <laughs> He's a singer. He's a singer. He just passed away. <laughs> you got to listen. To, okay, Sorry. your homework, your homework. <laughs> yeah, I got podcast, you. You're going to Google Paradise by the Dashboard Light and you're going to listen to it. It's about an eight minute song. Dashboard Light. Got and, it. And one of your uh, advisors in the journalism business will definitely be familiar with that song. Oh, yeah. I'll just go play it in her, her room. I'll walk in silently. Yeah. <laughs> tell, her, tell her that was my homework for, for both of you guys. But um, so anyway, we're supposed to go to this concert. We've been looking forward to it for months. I mean, I am not exaggerating. We're like going to leave at you know six o'clock, meet some friends, have a couple beverages, go in, enjoy the heck out of this show. And like 545, I get a call about some major piece of news going on on my beat. And I've got to deal with it. So I literally have to tell my wife, like, quick call, you know, these other friends of ours that only live like 20 minutes away, see if they can pick you up. I'm going to be late. I got it. Somebody has to leave my ticket for me. Like, you know, leave it on your car seat. I'll bring the other keys. Like we had to figure this massive plan out. And I literally got there, like, as the show was starting and, you know, they were like handing me beers. I'm trying to chug a beer as I'm sitting down. <laughs> and, you know, it was just like one of those, it's one of those weird things I just remember, but it was just like, because it's just like a conflict. You're just like, yeah, yeah. You, you know, so, so, you know, just as an example of, you know, you probably the advice for people going forward is, yeah, like be willing to draw those boundaries, be willing to be like, you know, like, look, you know, it, it depends what it was. If it was like the owner of the team selling the team and he called you up and was giving you a national exclusive, you probably got to still do it. Yeah. This case was a minor league player popping off, ripping the organization. Like someone else could have written it. Like I should have just been able to say, no, I'm good. So, that's one thing I think you, you learn and you ask me about things you learn kind of as you go through your career and mm -hmm. probably, you know, have, have learned a little bit now, you know, to, to kind of have some boundaries here, draw a few lines more. And, you know, and it's part of it too, is just the way the business has grown. I mean, we don't, we no longer, we have this kind of phrase that they try to get us to buy into, but you know, we're, you don't have newspapers don't have the space anymore. They don't have unlimited resources. So you don't always have to do stories of obligation. You want to do stories of interest. So we try to follow that a little bit more too. And it's all about the, part of the yeah. 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 Part of that's picking and choosing what's going to get well read, what's going to get web hits, what's going to get clicks. You, know, you that like that better or do you, you miss the story? No, I, I, I probably am in the old fart category on that. It's like, like I've covered a team, you know, this will be the 25th year of covering the Tampa Bay Rays. Like I know what stories like you should do. And those aren't always the stories that people click on. 
And then there's stuff that like there was a former Rays player recently and not a, he only played for the Rays for like one and a half years. Um, not not a huge deal, but he, he passed away, sadly, at 55 of cancer. And I just happened to have anything else to do that day. So I was like, all right, I'll write it up and, you know, get put some context in about his Rays history and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that story got like five times the hits that a story I did like a week later that I spent like five days on about, you know, this interesting tale of when there was a lockout for Major League Baseball in the 70s and these college kids got to play against big leaguers and this guy got a hit off Tom Seaver and ran into Tom Seaver 25 years later and Tom Seaver remembered him. And like, yeah. I thought that was a great story. And then the Very story about the story. former player, yeah. And the story about the former player passing that I knocked out in like an hour, got like five times the hit. So sometimes you don't know, you just have to kind of go with the flow, but yeah, I, I don't know that I'm totally like, I, I know our job is kind of measured by that these days, but I don't know if I'm totally bought into the, you, know, you only write what people are going to click on. Yeah. And you know, sadly, that's not just like, baseball news it's kind of all types of news now and now you're starting to get a lot of misinformation spread i know we were kind of talking about that earlier and over text but that's honestly a sad case that most of the things that you see over the news or over social media or anything is not it's not necessarily true or even necessary for you to know it's more of just to grab your attention make you click on something and they make a couple of dollars off the ads and you now have some misinformation in your brain that you're going to spread to other people and have arguments with people that actually know the right thing about, and then just cause more conflict and divide, which I don't know, you might have to be able to speak a little bit more about that being in the journalist world. But I, myself just growing up and like, you know, as a 19 year old kid, I'm on Instagram all the time. I'm on like social media platforms and I'm seeing all of these crazy things right now, sort of about like Ukraine and kind of like Russia invading it. And it's funny. I saw a meme about it where it was like, it's like the old Simpson, he goes uh, out of the grass and then they, someone says something and he disappears back in. And it's like, it was like all of the uh, people worrying about or all the uh, cultural ethics, like experts. And then like as uh, uh, they left and then the other ones that came in were the Ukraine and Russian experts, like as the social media headlines right. have changed and everyone thinks they're an expert at everything, but no one actually knows nearly as much as they should to have an opinion on it. Right. And, and I, I literally see that both in my in my realm of quote unquote expertise, like people talking about, you know, on my Twitter or on my Facebook, I'll put some stories there sometimes or you know whatever uh, about the baseball lockout. Like people are arguing over it. And, you know, I just like I just don't it's like too exhausting. I just don't have the energy to like weigh in and because and, then you correct one person and then three more people want to jump on you because they're not going to agree. And then you're like, like, I'm, I'm right here. So I'm not why oh, yeah. am I the one being why am I having to defend myself when I'm right? But but then as a, as a consumer, as someone trying to learn, I mean, I'll just go back to the COVID and it's still out there. But, you know, I mean, we're planning my daughter's wedding right now. And, you know, this has been in the works for a year. And, you know, so as we're like, you know, nine months out, six months out, we're trying to anticipate, you know, what's what what are the CDC regulations now? What are you know, where are we? Are we still on masking? Are we still on, you know, Vax? Is Vax still mandated? And, you know, things are obviously evolving. But even something as simple as that, where you think you would just be able to, you know, Google and find the top authority, and and there is no top authority. Everyone is spinning, oh, yeah. and you have people arguing, and you know this and that, and, and then you know you get into you mentioned Instagram, and and this is obviously the case on Twitter too. But people that fake clips and do edit clips—that was a big thing. With, uh, President yeah. President Biden a couple of times that's come up recently, where you know whatever side of it you're on, but people were were editing up stuff he said. And it, and then portraying it as like he was saying this when he was actually saying this, but you know it, it 
fake oh, clips. Made too easy now. Nobody, too many people can edit in Photoshop right. to make things real enough, like deep fakes. Have you seen those? People can literally like make your face say whatever it wants with your voice, and it's not you. That's wow. unbelievable. Like that's scary. <laughs> and they're somewhat new to like you know like editing and just the world in general. But give it a couple more years, and little twelve-year-olds that have a laptop will probably figure out how to do it. And it's we have to figure out new ways to spread true information because everyone's thinking they're an expert. And the thing what you're saying about you know you're right, you know you're right at like completely, and all of these like Instagram usernames are now just defaming you and saying that you're wrong, and they don't have to put a face in front of them to back it up. Like it's literally just they can say this comment, turn off their phone. And now they're forever in your brain and 50 other people who saw their comment now believe them because they were the second person to say something yeah. and it, it, it needs to be changed. And I don't know how that's going to happen, but I don't know. No, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I, I deal mostly more so with Twitter uh, than probably any other platform. And first of all, we could literally make a Twitter account in five minutes while we're doing this podcast. I could make a Twitter account in your name and put some stuff out there. I mean, oh yeah. It's that easy. And, you know, so people, you know, you're right, the, the unverified, you know, usually the no photo or the, you know, the generic photo, you know, no, no information or, you know, profile information that's generic or fake. Right. And, and it, it does. It provides like talk radio is probably, not, again, not as big now as it was prevalent before. But at least if people would call on a talk radio, you, you, they ran the chest of you recognizing their voice. Oh, yeah. You could, you could call in and give a fake name. But if somebody's listening that knows you, they might still recognize your voice. But you create a fake profile on twitter and you go on there and say whatever you want and yet all you need is you tag enough people one person who is verified that has a bunch of users picks it up they retweet it people do that with fake trades i mean we literally yeah. as journalists as baseball writers like send each other we send like a group email like reminding people just before the trade deadline like you know, everybody like heads up because somebody will take you know like buster only from espn someone will make a fake espn account make it look like his account, you know, change one letter, use his picture in something and put out there a fake trade. And some, some writer like myself, who's in the middle of doing six other things, sees it on their phone and you'll be like, Oh, big trade and hit retweet. And then realize, Oh crap, that wasn't really him. Now, you know, like, so now it hurts your yeah. reputation. Right. So yeah. it's just, it's, it, it is literally the wild, wild west out there. No doubt about it. Yeah. You got any solutions for it? <laughs> So Joe Madden, who is the manager of the California or the Los Angeles Angels, used to be with the Cubs, used to be with the Rays. He actually once had this great idea, and he said there should be good Twitter and bad Twitter, and you can only <laughs> sign up for one. And either you're on good Twitter and you're always positive, or you can be on bad Twitter and you can always be negative. But you couldn't be on both. So yeah, it, was wow. very, it wasn't practical, but it was a heck of an idea, at least in theory. Yeah, maybe it'll work. Who knows? <laughs> Some people are just here to cause chaos, but who knows? Did you see that actually Trump's um, like Donald Trump's uh, social media actually just got released and I don't know too much about it. I don't really care for politics too much or even to talk about it, but I think it's pretty interesting that he's made one and it's, it's called truth. And I like, once I saw it, it was up, I was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to join up for it and just see what it's like. Try to sign up and it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't take my email. And I, I don't know. I tried it earlier today and it won't work. I wonder if some server stuff is happening with maybe app right. or and everything like or maybe they don't want you college kids. You're just all too radical. Could be. And yeah, that's, that's another thing. You see a lot of radicalism here. Like no one is really in the middle. And like, what even is the middle to be honest? Cause right. there's so many different aspects. Like you can't put one person's moral identity 
into one party or one like yeah party like democrat democratic or republican or libertarian whatever that even like could stand for but like i definitely have ideas that like go on both sides but who do i side with in the end if i say that i side with someone then half the people in the world are going to hate me and if i say the other one then vice versa and if i say the middle then nothing ever gets done so what really like could you do about it but anyways i kind of also wanted to talk to you about the mlb lockout because when i knew i was gonna start talking to you i started getting really interested in it and now i'm just i'm really curious so like what's the next step starting like going forward with the the players versus the mlb so yeah it's a another really frustrating kind of time right now for anybody who's even peripherally involved you know involved in major league baseball i've been talking to a bunch of players you know on that play for the rays that i cover and some guys that live in the area here and uh, talk to some managers and coaches and, and you know some team officials and like it, nobody's happy about this. I mean, the, the, the union feels like they're totally right in, in main, you know, having the demands they're having and the owners feel like they're totally right in doing the lockout and, you know, not wanting to give in on some things because it's basically the owners want status quo and the players want changes to make up for some economic losses that they sustained in previous uh, negotiations that have then kind of played out to be more severe than they had anticipated. So that, that's kind of the gist. Are the like the players negotiations because of the economic losses? Is this sort of like it's only from past negotiations or because COVID or like kind of go into the specifics of that? Yeah. Yeah. Not really COVID. It's more a matter of like like things that they gave up like five years ago or 10 years ago, the previous two labor agreements, like when arbitration would start and whether there'd be a minimum amount whether it be a maximum amount that the minimum salary would go up. Like there's things that they agreed to in previous agreements, uh, previous labor agreements that have thus the way they've played out have actually turned out to either not benefit the players as much as they were led to believe or actually hurt them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then part of that's their own fault. They were like the last labor agreement, like one of their, this has been kind of pointed out and it's probably been a little bit um, made bigger than it really is. But like in the last labor agreement, one of their big things they were excited about was, they wanted the teams to make sure that for spring training games, every player had their own row on the bus, not just their own seat. Like every player had an empty seat next to them. So they didn't have to feel crunched on the, on the bus after the games and to the game. The owners are like a bus cost us like a thousand bucks for the day. Sure. We'll get every player their own bus. Who cares? Like, but you know, on the other hand, arbitration doesn't start for most players till after they're in the, in the league for three years. So that saves the owners a ton of money. So there's things like that. And, and the players have some validity too. I mean, salaries have actually gone down over the last few years, even though there's no salary cap, there's something called the collective bargaining tax, which oh. makes teams that spend after a certain amount on their payroll have to pay a, like a penalty into the general fund. So, you know, the, the players kind of like agreed to that. And now they've seen, Oh, wait a second. They told us there'd be no salary cap, but that's kind of acting like a cap. Only two teams went over it last year, the Padres and the Dodgers. So, it is kind of working like a cap. Four other teams were like just under it. Huh. So they want stuff like that changed. Um, and it, it's very easy as, as a fan, as a, as a journalist, as a person who works at the stadium, whose livelihood is working as a concession worker or at a hotel where the teams stay or Uber driver who makes all their money taking people to games. It's easy for any of us to say, this is billionaires fighting with millionaires over millions or billions of dollars. You guys got to figure this out. But, you know, on the inside, they have their lines that they've drawn. They are, you know, the owners don't want to see anything go backward from the system they have, which is making them a ton of money. The players, as I said before, feel like they agree. Things that they were, you know, agreed to previously haven't worked out. They want some changes made. 
Both sides seem willing to draw a line. As we sit here and, and you record this, they're a few days away from a deadline that was set up to where uh, the owner said if the, there's no agreement by then, they're going to have to affect the start of the regular season. And that's when people make their money. Players aren't paid during spring training. Owners, it's kind of a wash. I mean, owners make a little bit of money on spring training, but you know the money they get from those exhibition games, that usually they have to split with like the county or whoever their landlord is in Florida or Arizona. They pay all the players' expenses, even though the players don't get salary during spring training. So spring training is kind of a wash for the owners. The players basically kind of break even, maybe lose a little money. So that's not a big deal. But when the regular season starts, you know, teams have only 81 home games. That's where they make their, their revenue, and not just from tickets and concessions, but having those games on TV and radio. So they're going to have to refund to their rights holders if there's not games played, because the rights holders paid for a certain amount of games, certain amount of inventory from the media market standpoint. And then the players, you know, there's, I think Max Scherzer is the highest paid player. I think I saw something, he loses $250,000 a day um, for every day that the season gets, you know, shortened or something. So, you know, so there's lose. mega money at stake here. Who do you think kind of has more of a uh, kind of position on the argument, like the players or the owners? I mean, the players probably are right that there should be some changes. I mean, I'm, this is a very un educated unpolished position but i would say the players probably have some right there should be some changes the owners you know you can't negotiate by saying we want the status quo we're not going to change that's not really negotiating mm-hmm. um but on the other hand the players are you know pointing out oh the salaries have you know gone down in four years well that is probably true i, I don't doubt their numbers and the owners are making a ton of money i don't doubt that but on the other hand the average major league salary is between like three and a half and four million dollars the minimum salary is going to be over $600,000 this year. And, and yes, the minor leagues are horrible. There are players who literally can't afford to be minor league baseball players that have to have their parents support them or their wives, you know, work and pay the rent. There's players who sleep six guys in a two bedroom apartment in minor league cities. There's guys who sleep on couches the whole season because they can't afford their own place. All that is true, but the payoff is when you get to the big leagues and, you know, it's hard to say that, you know, the, the major league players, the Max Scherzer is making 40 million a year. He's on the union negotiating committee. He's saying, we've got to have changes to help players make more money. Well, I don't know if he's the best guy to have on the negotiating. Yeah. Committee. Maybe have, maybe have, you know, a guy who just came up making five seventy five or 600,000 should be on the negotiating committee because he can make a real case. I don't think the owners are going to look seriously at Max Scherzer and say, you want you're more? having a hard time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that one, but yeah, I, I could definitely see that kind of side for the most of the MLB players. I mean, not the ones who are making hundreds of millions of dollars, but yeah, if you've been living like dirt for the past, what, like four or five years, working your way up the minor league system, finally got yourself to a 500K contract, but you see these people that have been there for like two years after, like longer than you, making hundreds of millions, I'd be a little like mad. I'd say, come on, like I have worked your system for this long and you can't pay me out yet. Like, I can definitely see right. some advocates on that side. Right. And that's one of the things that they're trying to do. They are trying to get more money to those younger players because those first three years, the teams control their salary. A lot of them are kept right around the minimum. And, you know, you guys have AAA baseball in Charlotte, AAA yeah. in Durham, uh, obviously. So you've got oh, the Salem dash. <laughs> there you go. I think, well, they're class A, right? I think, I think so. Class A, yeah. yeah. I saw you're from Winston-Salem. I looked that <laughs> up too. But, yeah. um, you know, AAA Durham Bulls, AAA Charlotte Knights are two super good teams i mean great you know, mm-hmm. charlotte stadium's great a lot of people think that, stadiums. Could be, that could be expanded to major league stadium durham historic you know great atmosphere but yeah there are guys who play for those two teams using those as examples 
of guys that do sleep six guys to an apartment, of guys that couch surf because you know they get sent up up and down. There's there's guys that get that have their wives with them. This happened to a guy in Durham. He had his wife with him in Durham. He got called up, so the team flew him down. You know, so they would have his wife drove their car down. By the time she got to St. Pete, like the next day, he'd been sent out already. Like they only needed him for one day, and that's how it works. But it was like maybe he should have had better read the room a little more. Have asked him like, hey, are you keeping me around or? But like, so he got sent back to Durham. He, you get three days to report. So he waited for her. But like, literally, he got sent to Durham before she'd even made it to St. Pete with their car. Like, it's a weird, it's a weird life. But the payoff is when you get to the big leagues. So. Yeah. So there has to be a payoff, or no one's going to work the system anymore, or at least revolt, just like the way they are. So another question I have about the lockout is like, you think it will come to the regular season? Do you think it will definitely be resided by then or? Yeah. I mean, they need, they need about four weeks for spring training. So that's why they're kind of looking at this like February 28th, March 1st, you know, deadline. If they don't have an agreement that then they're going to acknowledge that the regular season is going to be impacted. Um, there's some people who think that, you know, there might be kind of a, well, this is a podcast kind of an FU FU kind of moment. Uh-huh. If they if they get to where the, the start of the regular season's off, if like they say we're definitely not gonna start the regular season on time, where both sides may be like, well, the heck with it then. We're gonna we're gonna take a couple weeks to regroup and maybe they don't even you know negotiate again till mid-March or early April and the season doesn't start till late April or May. There's definitely kind of that concern out there that wow. there's a lot of animus between the two sides, there's a lot of mistrust between the two sides. Labor negotiations, anyone will tell you you're in finance, you know, they're not supposed to get personal, but there's some people who think that there is a little bit of a personal thing between like the negotiators for the union and the commissioner and his people. And, you know, look, I, I don't know what's right. I and mean, we were just talking before about people spreading this information. We're, we're maybe doing that a little bit ourselves right now. But I, I think that's a pretty safe, you know, widely as widely accepted assumption that there is some animus between the two sides. And, you know, that's part of it is they've got a they need a breakthrough in these negotiations and it hasn't come yet. I mean, they're they're meeting daily again as we're recording this this week. And um, they're, they're like moving $5 million on something that they're $90 million apart on. I mean, if you're trying to buy a car, you know, eventually you're here, the dealer's here and you're going to end up somewhere in the middle. I mean, or you're going to get up and leave, but you're not going to sit there for five days in a row. Like they're at this point where they're not hardly moving and, and the clock's ticking. So what's going to change in the next couple of days? Yeah. I mean, super interesting. How many lockouts have the MLB like have gone through? I know there's, I know of one other, but I I'm not too knowledgeable yeah, you, on this topic you, you, you kids today so there have been uh, eight labor stoppages in baseball either strikes or lockouts uh the most famous was the one in 94 when the players went on strike in august and they did not finish the season they did not have a playoffs or world series that year the first time the world series ever got canceled for that reason it canceled like one other time like in 1904 or something but that was like the first time it got canceled for that kind of reason so there was no world series that year it was like wow how could this actually happen and they, yeah and they stayed on strike until uh, right when the 95 season was supposed to start they actually i just wrote about this recently is that the teams brought in replacement players they went around and found like guys who used to play in the majors used to play in the minors um this i talked to this guy from the st louis cardinals because their training was here in st pete and i said you remember that team he goes oh yeah i had a a stockbroker was my opening day pitcher two guys who were truck drivers were playing in the outfield for me I mean, they were just fine and, and they were ready to go. They had signed these guys and they, you know, they were called scabs. They were called all these terrible things, union busters. And some were guys that still hope to play in the big leagues. A couple went on Kevin Millar, who made a pretty famous career on MLB network in the last few years for himself, played for the Red Sox. He was actually one of these replacement players. And he's one of the few guys who went ahead and played in the big leagues afterward. But 
you know, the owners tried that. And like I said, it got right to the day before opening day when they finally, the strike got settled. It was actually went to like a federal court and they issued a, like an order that said that the strike was over uh, and they worked it out. But so it's happened before, but that was the last time there was an extended interruption. Uh, it was 94, 95. The, I think there've been five agreements since then or four agreements since then. Each one of those was able to be resolved without a labor stop, but this one obviously not as we're coming up on a hundred days. Do you think this one is kind of the same seriousness, like extent of the, the World Series lockout? Or Yeah, I mean, the, pl- the players are really unhappy with Major League, you know, with the Major League uh, owners and with the commissioner's office. Now, you know, like I said, once you start doing the math on how big of a paycheck you're going to miss every day, and, you know, there's six, 700 guys who play in the big league. So, you know, not everyone's going to be on board with this. They all say they are. They all say there's a lot of, you know, unity and, and they're all together and they trust their leaders. but look, there's guys that are going to be like, Hey, I, this is my first time making any real money. I don't, I don't want to sit out this year. I want to play this year. This is the last year of my career. I want to play or my team's really good. I've played for 15 years and never won. And my team got a chance to win this year. Finally, you know, so you have all these different interests. That's what makes labor negotiations to me. So interesting is that you're representing so many different parts like the union. And then the same thing with the commissioner's office. I mean, They've got small market teams like Tampa Bay. They've got big market teams like the Yankees. The odds are they're not aligned and seeing eye to eye on the same stuff either. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. The way I see it, though, is like like the players having different circumstances and ideals. That probably doesn't change throughout the years. Like there's like even, what did you say, 78? Those people, there were still the high, like making uh, people making tons of money. And then there was the players who were making nothing but had something to prove and I'm sure those people were the scabs and then the others were the ones who were sitting in their million dollar homes, like just watching the scab world series apparently. But yeah, that's very interesting to think, think about now. I'm actually really interested in the MLB. I've always been more of a, <laughs> more of a NFL NBA type of guy, but I, my family's up from Boston. So I got some Red Sox blood in me and maybe I'll just follow through this season. If we have a season. Exactly. But it was really nice talking to you, Mark. We're coming up on the end of the time, but is there anything that you would like to say to kids that are kind of pursuing a journalist field? Yeah, I will say this is that uh, as, as beat up as the industry has been and um, as tough as it's been and you read, you know, people quitting the business all the time and um, pay is not great and hours are long and even some of the stuff we talked about here on your podcast, but it's still a really important thing and it's really important. And, you know, we need people who are willing to not, you know, make, willing to take a lower salary, willing to work long hours, willing to, you know, learn how to do all the social media platforms. I mean, we still need people to do that. I mean, there's a lot of things going on that people would never know about. And, and, you know, sports is easy. I mean, people call us the toy department sometimes. And we run once in a while, we have significant stories. But, you know, we need people to cover city councils and state legislatures and shine the light in places that people in charge don't want that light to be shined. So we, we need people, good, smart, aggressive, young, talented people in journalism. And, and it may not be, like I said, your ideal salary, your ideal job, but we still need those people. And I, I hope that they're not just discouraged by the way the industry has been beat up and, and labeled these days. Yeah, that's a very fair point because, you know, journalism has been beaten up recently. No one really trusts any writer or author in any serious topic. And I feel like that's definitely a thing that needs to be solved as soon as possible, because I, I don't know who I trust to like listen to. Like I see a state secretary say something and I don't know if I re- like truly believe it. They just might be some politician that like, you know, is just doing it for the money or some writer writing about this politician. The one thing that I've seen a lot of, cause I actually just started taking this class in climate change. Cause I have to take it for 
the liberal arts that you skipped. Lucky you. I'm reading all of his literature and about literature that's about literature that's all wrong and they're lying to you because he was funded by this person, blah, blah, blah. It's like so many different aspects and pieces that are moving that I look at these journals and I'm just like, I don't know if I believe any of it. I don't know what studies to believe. Numbers are changing all the time. And climate change is definitely one of those topics that you really don't know who to believe. I mean, that just goes for any type of uncomfortable question or any type of uncomfortable topic that no one really knows about. So I think that's a very fair point that journalists coming up should try to spread the truth more than worry about the dollar signs. I hope people do take that kind of to heart before they go into their careers and take the money and lie to all of us that don't know. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. And yeah, no problem, Liam. Good to talk with you, man. Yeah, you too.